Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. Now this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether that's prison romance novels or gags for Bake Off, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now today I'd like to welcome a most excellent and inspiring broadcaster, journalist, creator of legendary magazines and now writer of handsome orange volumes of rock history, David Hepworth. David, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. And thank you so much for joining me. Now, before we get to your five rules, um, I remembered something before I, when I was launching Strong Words magazine, you very kindly met with me to talk about some of your experiences of independent magazine publishing. And during this conversation, you shared with me, with an almost schoolboyish shyness and disbelief, your delight that having had two books published, you were now officially allowed to call yourself a writer. I can't remember who it was who implemented this two-book rule, um, but it's, does, it, does it still give you the same shiver of pleasure to know that every time you look in the mirror, a writer stares back? I think it was actually Meg Rosoff who probably who told me, oh, you can call yourself a writer now. You know, you've written two books, yeah. And because uh, prior to that, I always called myself, people asked, what do you, what do, you do? And I used to say, well, I spent most of my life in magazine publishing, you know, and it's kind of thing that you won't, you don't mind discussing further if the person is genuinely interested, but if they're just pretending to be interested, you'd rather move on to another subject entirely. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, when you say you're a writer, they go, oh, really? What kind of thing? Thinking you're going to say, oh, I'm actually the person who wrote Harry Potter or, you know, um, some thriller. And, uh, and then when you, you say, well, no, they're mainly books about music. Oh, really? What kind of music? And then you have to kind of go into that. So, um, yes, it is partly. It's partly a bit of a relief to be able to call myself a writer. I, I put it on, uh, on applications now when I have to fill in forms. <laughs> author. I put author. <laughs> Very good. Well, congratulations. And your book um, output, quite prolific over the last few years, but also... <laughs> very sort of tightly marshaled in, a, in, a, in a, a quite sort of specific niche of sort of late 60s, 70s rock. You know, you've written on the significance of the LP, the rise and fall of the rock star, the, um, the, uh, how the um, British bands kind of reversed the tide of American music coming to the UK and, and exported uh, music back, the Americans' own music back to them. How, how did you identify your niche? Well, uh, that was the story of how I came to write books because uh, you know, I'd worked all those years in magazines and nobody in publishing had ever asked me, uh, in book publishing, had ever asked me to write anything uh, with one tiny exception, but it doesn't really count. And, uh, and uh, I was approached by an agent who was looking for somebody to write a book about the 50th anniversary of Blonde on Bond, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. 
I said, well, it's very, very nice of you to ask, but I don't think I can add anything to the story of Blonde on Blonde. But I would like to write a book about music in 1971. And he said, oh, really, why? And I said, well, uh, you know, I once wrote a column in Word magazine saying the Annus Mirabilis of the rock and roll album was 1971. And um, it is a, a theory that I've I've come to believe more and more. And he said, oh, that's an interesting idea. So I wrote a proposal and a sample chapter and so forth and shopped it around. And uh, it got absolutely no interest whatsoever. <laughs> Apart from, at the end of the day, Bill Scott Carr at, uh, at Transworld said, um, no, I, I kind of like this. And, you know, and so we, we, we did a deal with them. And I remember saying to the agent, I, I said, um, does it, do you think he likes the book or does he like me? He says, no, he likes you. <laughs> and, which is not a bad thing, you know, because he obviously thought, well, this is a bloke who can go on the radio, or you know, who can who can stand up the idea, or the, you know, uh, his, right. his theory about 1971, which is a very important part of the kind of um, the arrangement with an author nowadays. But then the book did surprisingly well to the extent that there's now about to be a film based, you know, multi-part streaming, you know, coming to your local Netflix very soon. Uh, grand film all about it and so that's how the 1970s became to came to be very central to the, to the whole deal because i think what everybody realized that people will read books about well they read books about music even though they don't read periodicals about music anymore but they certainly read books about it and they're probably more likely to read books about the 70s and maybe the 80s than any other time because the number of people who remember the 60s declines all the time. The number of people who remember the 50s declines all the time. And, uh, and the, you know, I, I don't know, the 90s haven't yet, haven't yet arrived in those particular crosshairs. So ever since then, the other things I've done, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars, Fabulous Creation, which is about the LP, they tended to be in that, in that 70s period. There's a, there's a bit of a sweet spot, I suppose, there. And also you get into loads of, loads of interesting things like I, I, say, I believe you can't have rock stars. You can no longer have rock stars because of social media. Social media has made the profession of a rock star utterly impossible because mm -hmm. of it's spending all the time apologizing. Whereas the, the glory days, if you like, we're, we're, in, we're in the 70s. So that's where we ended up there. I know it's not the only place, but it's, it's certainly a sweet spot. Okay. Now, one thing writers have in common, one of the few things writers have, tend to have in common is that uh, one of the things they least enjoy is writing. Do you, do you enjoy <laughs> putting ink on paper? <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, when I, when I get myself into, into doing it, I, I'm not a person who can get up and, uh, you know, crank it out every, absolutely every morning. And, but I think it's a little bit of because of the nature of what I write. But I'm, then again, or I'm sure all writers would say that, you know. So it's it's not like I always say I look enviously at kind of friends like Mark Millingham who, you know, write crime novels or whatever. I think well, it's just in your head. You just sit there and you invent. I'm sure it's not as simple as that. Nothing is ever as simple as that. Whereas I have to decide from out of the massive facts anecdotes 
memories, whatever that I've got at my disposal, which ones to you know put in this particular in this particular story or this particular part of this story. So a great deal of why my time uh, is spent thinking about writing. And I know that sounds like idling. It's not really. Because <laughs> the, the one thing I miss is, uh, is uh, particularly during lockdown, is being able to, to do what I do with a great deal of my time, which is just go for very long walks, mm. during which I'm thinking about stuff. Yes, well, we'll get onto that in a moment. But uh, it's certainly true, isn't it, that the it's the people are astonished that some writers, you know, are um, you know that they're, that they're, you ask them what their daily output is, and they say, "Oh, yes, I do. A, I do a solid 500 words every day," which seems which seems rather thin gruel. But but the, the important thing I think for writers is not the actual the, the process of the the deciding which in which order to place their words, but coming up with the, the 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 brilliance of it, which does come from the bit when you're not writing, right? When you're listening to people talking on buses or or Absolutely. watching the bizarre interactions of uh, people in the street, this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's hugely important, that side of it. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Okay, so let's get onto your onto your five rules. Now, these are presume, presumably rules that have served you well in your current incarnation as an author of rock history. But I think these apply to most any genre. A quite extraordinary set of rules. And uh, the first one is: if you can't write, you can't write the book if you don't know what the cover's going to look like. Discuss. <laughs> well. This is, I, I don't know, this probably comes less of a surprise to you, Ed, than it will to most people, because you, like me, have, you know, done your time in the world of magazines. And, uh, and it, but it only latterly struck me in the world of magazines that I'd been wasting my time all these years thinking of them as media. And they're not media, they're packaged goods. <laughs> they are <laughs> things put together in a certain form, you know, with the proportions just right, Mm-hmm. where the matters of tone and uh, tone of voice are massively important. And the outside of the package, as you know from the world of the magazines, is massively important. Yes. It just is. It's a thing that communicates what you are, and it also kind of embodies your, your, uh, your promise. And so it kind of amazes me when I come across authors are working on books and they don't know their the cover is being done by somebody they never even meet they're just they just kind of handed it now when i was doing my first one never a dull moment in music in 1971 very early in the piece i was coming up with two or three potential pictures for the cover and sending them to bill who's the editor publisher and saying, what do you think about this? Yeah, I like that one. I'm not sure about that one. And let's see if we can clear that one. Let's see if we can get that one. And then we'll do that one. And it will be called this. Because those words, the title will go with the picture that's on the cover. And it has to be done in a very particular way. And so it was. And it was very successfully put together by Richard Shaler, who's the art director at Transworld. He's done a terrific job on all of them. And, uh, and, uh, he did it with an orange background, which you referred to earlier, and uh, very, and they were very pleased. It really went very well. And when it came time to do the second book, and come on, people, they um, they came up with a thing that looked very similar. We had a black and white picture of you know, David Bowie, and um, 
and but they did it with a red background and sent it to me and said what do you think and i said well based on my experience of magazines it's better to be identifiably the same than to be different but weaker and and if you're changing from orange to red you're different but weaker and so why do you keep it the same and they said really wow oh okay <laughs> Oh, no, no, I'm not saying they're dimmer. They're clearly not at all, you know, but they, the, the, the publishing, well, the book publishing way of doing it was to change it. The mm -hmm. magazine way of doing it was don't change it. Yes. <laughs> and so now we're kind of however many books in, and uh, you know, people, people get, uh, during lockdown, people uh, message me saying, I've just been watching this, you know, uh, minor uh, cabinet minister being interviewed at home on zoom and he's got two of your books <laughs> behind him on the shelf and the reason that you see that is because that distinctive mm. orange is there so well, well i have you know, at least half a dozen of them and uh, they're, they're very um, they're very distinctive there's something also i think about orange in the in the um you know the language of color i think orange is the happiest of all colours. It's the, oh, well, the okay. colour which has fewest sort of negative uh, connotations. So it's yeah. uh, it, that's the, how people react subconsciously to orange. Yeah, and it's happens. also, in, in that particular format, it's a combination of the orange of the, of the background colour and the black and white of the picture. The picture's got to be black and white, mm -hmm. you know, because it's got to feel... Because black and white pictures just look cooler on the, on the covers of books, you know. And what you're what you're conjuring, knowingly or not, in using those pictures is a is a kind of a lost world of authenticity that people yes. really relate to, you know. So you know that's that's what I I do believe do believe. And I was supposed to be working on a book at the moment, you know, and the classic illustration of the old joke about the two people, you know, I'm working on a book. Oh, really? Neither am I. You know, and I think one of the reasons I'm not getting on with it quite as fast as I should be is that none of the titles I've come up with it so far have quite hit the spot. Oh, they okay. will, it will, <laughs> but but I think that's really important. Having that's, the uh, name of the book is really important, and it's magazine thinking. That's a very and early then, stage to be uh, stumped, isn't it? The the title, the uh, <laughs> the well, very well, first words to. Uh, well, you know, I, th I think probably a lot of books are written without people knowing what the title is going to be. Well, they come up with a title and then it gets kicked into touch. Whereas yeah, I just like to, I like to have a firm idea of all that stuff, uh, you know, all the outside of the package mm -hmm. as early as possible in the day. Well, in the current issue of Strong Words, there's a piece about how Jaws was written, the book Jaws, and they uh, didn't have a title until about 20 minutes before the book went on press. You know, it was actually really? pretty, pretty much, uh, you know, good to go, um, but they just couldn't think of one. And they, they had 200, the the, um, uh, the editor or the, uh, the guy sort of responsible for putting it together, I think he said they, they come up with about 250 ideas, most of them massively pretentious, you know, the, the something of the Leviathan and, uh, you know, oh, never going to work as, as this great popular pulp uh, <laughs> novel and so jaws was the only word that they could come up with that seemed to come how some somehow summarize everything they wanted and that fit on the and it fit 
That would be the point. The art director would be the person going, oh, great, it fits. Yeah. You don't have to run it on its side, all that. And what a brilliant piece of branding that is still all those years since. You know, you can summon it up really quickly, can't right. you? So that's extraordinary. The, the famous film poster was the um, came from the paperback yes. design of the, the paperback. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, um, sure. the, the shark rising like no shark has ever risen. You know, I don't think sharks. <laughs> yes, coming that way. <laughs> to, to the vertical. But anyway, that's uh, that's a piece of good publishing. Very good. Okay, number two. So it says it doesn't matter whether people agree with your argument so long as they find it interesting. Well, yeah. So you know, my books, and I think it's probably going to be a thread goes through all these all these rules, um, which is, you know, I, 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 I've grown up on kind of short form writing, if you like, you know, comparatively, sh relatively short form writing, uh, you know, when in the world of magazines, a 3000, 4000 word piece is quite a long piece, you know, whereas mm -hmm. the book is obviously under a thousand words or more. And, um, and so I, I've approached, I've approached my books as if they were as if they were long features in magazines. You know, they are they are an argument. You know, the first one was 1971 was the Anas of the, the Rock album. The second one was Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Star. And the and the key thing about that in that in that expression is the fall, because you're making it clear there's an ending. Right. You know, I do think the definition of a story is it has an ending. Even if you're the person who put it there, you know that's what a story is, mm -hmm. and um, and so, you know, I then uh, you know a fabulous creation about about the uh, listening to records on an LP was different from listening to it on a CD, and it's not just a qualitative thing; uh, it's a cultural thing, and um, and so as you know, you then inevitably you, you publish the books, and you and you know if in normal times, you'd be going around talking about it, the books in bookshops and literary festivals and whatever. And uh, and so you stand up and you kind of make your pitch. And, uh, and you know, all, all you're asking people to do is just is just hear you out. <laughs> and, and because it, it you ought to be coming up with an illuminating and interesting way of looking at something that, that people haven't thought about in those terms before. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether they agree with you. <laughs> you know, inevitably, when I talk about 1971, you know, at the end, there will always be somebody who will, a hand will go up and they'll say, well, it's very good. I enjoyed your book. But don't you think it should be 1969 or 1972? And I always say the same thing, which is, you know, if that's what you think, write your own book. You know, please be my guest. And I'm glad you've I'm glad you've read mine to compare it with. You know, I'm I, I, I'm I'm not saying you know I'm not saying it, it's it's unarguable fact. I'm saying it's a useful lens through which to look at things, right? Because it, Sorry, it tells you something about 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 music. That's the point. And a big part of the sort of Hepworth uh, brand has always been to uh, you know state your opinion as fact. Is this is this <laughs> <laughs> is this a vital part in the sort of showmanship of writing? It's a, I suppose it is. I suppose it, okay, because listen, loads of reasons. Um, 
you know, if you can't be, you know, sweeping about pop music, what the hell can you be <laughs> sweeping about? You know, because it's opinion, isn't it? You know, uh, and people, the, the terrible thing about pop music enthusiasts is they always want you to share their enthusiasms. And they all feel vaguely hurt if you don't. Mm. You know, what you don't like the Smiths? No, I don't. But it doesn't matter. That's just me. You do. That's fine. I'm not going to argue with you at all. But uh, no, the um, the fact, the fact, and uh, and opinion thing, I think, very much comes back, goes back to Smash Hits, which I worked on with, uh, you know, Mark Ellen and Neil Tennant and Ian Birch, and very and loads of other fantastic people and we had a, had a terrific kind of office camaraderie and uh, and people used to regularly hold forth in the smash hits office saying do you know what the greatest record ever made is it's this and it would be either kelly marie or it was a bit daft and somebody would say no i think you'll find if you check it's not that it's so and so you know which is just a very amusing way, you know, because I never, inter interestingly, nobody ever fell out about music on any of the music magazines I ever worked on, ever. Would never have dreamed of doing, you know, because relationships with people are far more important <laughs> than that, you know. Whereas I do know, I do know music magazines where people have fallen out about music, and I just think that's pathetic. God's sake, it's music. <laughs> You know, right. real life is over here you know that's that's more important so yeah people do it just it's a thing that works in a in a certainly works in a live setting which is i i did this when i yeah when i was talking about fabulous creation my book about the lp and i think mark ellen suggested this to me he said when, when I was planning to go out and do stuff in bookshops and literary festivals, he said, you should finish with a list. Finish with a list. People like that. Because I'd finished with a list in 1971 or whatever. And uh, and so I just go, these are my 10 favorite LPs in reverse order. You know, and when I did 1971, I would say, at the end of it, I'd say, because... I think it's always good for people to go away from these events feeling they've learned something factual. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the 10 greatest LPs of 1971 are in reverse order. And I'm going to, I'm going to finish by playing you the best bit of the best track of the best record. And, uh, and it's amazing. You say this to a room full of people and they're all leaning forward. Nodding their they're heads. Going, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> go and tell me. And all there is is one bloke has stood there and gone, I'm telling you, these are the 10, you know, and that's just fine. It's it's what makes the world go round, you know. Well, I, think it's I don't a, expect people to believe me. It's a brilliant piece of advice in a way, isn't it? I think anybody who is ever blocked for what, writing whatever book, a work of fiction, a cookbook, whatever it happens to be, you know, if you're stuck, do a list. You know, I, I, <laughs> I think, you know, you can't go wrong with a list. No, yeah, you, you it can't. It's a universal you can't. format. Uh, yeah, and particularly in reverse order. They're better in reverse order because there's a bit of drama. About. Countdown, yeah. yes, quite. Yeah. Now, this next rule is worthy of Oscar Wilde, I think. Uh, it's uh, give people a good opener and they'll forgive you anything. Give them a good ending 
and they'll love you forever. How does this work? Well, I, I, I pinched, give them a good opening and they'll forgive you anything from, I think, Os Oscar Hammerstein, the you know, co-composer of, of great musicals. Mm -hmm. who, that's what he discovered in years of doing Broadway shows. If you've got a really good opening number, that gets you to that gets you to half time. I think is what he said. You could have had any old dreck after it, you know. If people if people think, wow, the first ten minutes was fantastic, they're still to, you know, to introduce the cast, aren't they? In a musical, that's you've got to have have everybody suppose, on stage. And uh, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. you do. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. Yeah, they they uh, they've shown you everything. It's like um, I'm always interested in all this stuff. Robert Falster of the, of the Australian group, The Great Go-Betweens, uh, wrote a very good book called The Ten Rules of Rock and Roll. <laughs> and one of his rules is, I think number six is, after the third number, a band has nothing left to show you. <laughs> I thought it was a really good point because you've seen all their toys. You've met them all. You know roughly what it's going to sound like, you know. Uh, so... Anyway, going back to the book, yes, you know, I, I, I traditionally the way I, I structure my books and the way I write my books is that they will they will tend to start with a quite a long introduction, opening chapter um, that that sets out the argument, I suppose, um, and you know, it's a classic a classic case of the old theory of you know. You tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you've told them. You know, those are the three bits, broadly, uh, of what I do. And so the first bit has got has got to be winning enough for them to... I, I Actually, I think if you write a long enough opening bit, they should feel... They should almost feel they've got their value for money. <laughs> By the end of chapter one. You've, well, uh, it's a long, no, it's a long chapter one, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever read the, have you ever, ever read The Surgeon of Crowthorn by Simon Winchester? No, I haven't. Fantastic, classic kind of narrative nonfiction. It's, it's subtitled A Tale of, I think it's, I think it's subtitled. A Tale of Murder, Madness, and the Oxford English... Ah, Day. yes, I have read this, yes, yes. Well, it's, well, you may remember, it's got a fantastic opening chapter where the guy is putting together the first Oxford English Dictionary, goes to meet one of his contributors and goes to a mysterious place. I won't spoil it for anybody. It's, and, and the last line of the opening chapter, you sit there and go, Wow! <laughs> I've, uh, money well spent even if you tell me nothing else you know what I mean and because uh, you feel if you lost that book then you would be really cross if your wife stole it or whatever you know or threw it away you'd be furious you made the terrible mistake of lending it to someone which is which, <laughs> which is the same as never seeing it again well absolutely because that by then you you really want to read the rest of the book, so I, I think that's what I'm saying in that in that opening thing, the, uh, the the opening chapter, which in my case is more than a chapter, it's usually an introduction, and it might be kind of I don't know how many words, but it might be a 
might be about six or seven thousand words and uh, and a bit similar when I get to the end so you know introduction is tell you what I tell you what I'm going to tell you the chapters are I lay out what I tell you and then at the end the the um, you know the finale where I tell you what I've told you and what I find is that uh, I find it best if I write the whole of it apart from the ending and then leave it for a while and then go back and really approach the ending because and this is one of the things I learned in magazines. There's a kind of fatigue sets in when you get near the end. You just think, oh, please, God, let me just, let me get to the end. <laughs> I, I'm never quite convinced by that, you know, when I watch, you know, the uh, misery, you know, where... Um, you know Stephen King, the film yes, of the Stephen yes. King, where he's got his champagne standing by and his cigarette, and you know because that's the day he's going to finish the book. Mm-hmm. I think it can't really work like that, can it? You know, <laughs> I don't think it does. And um, and so what I have to find in order to to write the outro, the finale of the book, I really have to gird my, um, I really have to marshal my resources. Well, you have to attack the bit at the end with as much energy as you attack the bit at the beginning. Right. I said that's what I with think. crosswords, with big crosswords, the clues at the end are definitely easier. You can you can certainly tell that the setter has, has run out of steam by fifty-seven across. You know. Well, I'm sure if they're doing it every day, they certainly <laughs> would you know would be. And that's why, you know, that, that relates to what I think is probably my next rule. You've got the list in front of you, mm. and I can't remember, which is, I think, writing a book has so much to do with energy and stamina. Yes. Well, let's do that uh, one. It's number four. The best thinking is done when walking. The best writing is done standing up. Well, um, you know, I, I, I tweeted about this ages ago because I was, I was half-heartedly looking for a standing desk. And I couldn't, which I couldn't really find successfully. But anyway, I was talking about this business of, you know, that I I can only compose when I'm walking. And people pointed out to me that loads of writers have done this. Dickens was the classic case. Dickens used to go for long walks and say the thing to himself. You know, so Dickens, interestingly, Dickens, who ended up being a kind of life performer, didn't he? He started as a life performer before he wrote the stuff down and then later on performed it, you know, which Mm -hmm. you can kind of tell in the way it's written. Um, But I have to, and it's it's a frustration of lockdown and and today's snowy and icy and so forth. I, I, I ideally go for a walk for kind of an hour and a half every morning. And I will always come back with three or four ideas, always. And that's just physical movement Mm -hmm. is what makes my brain work. Whereas if I had to sit at a desk, it wouldn't occur to me at all. If If I leave this room, which is the top of the house now, and go downstairs, it's not that big a house, but, you know, two floors, and make a cup of coffee and come back, I'll have had an idea. Just by doing that. If I sit here, I won't at all. (laughs) And I don't know if I'm a freak in this, but, you know, that's the way I am. And, you know, loads of my work in magazines, 
used to be sent just going out for walks with people and talking about things, you know. Well, I certainly found on magazines that there's no sort of format less likely to generate ideas than to put a bunch of people in a room and call it an ideas meeting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 the words put a load of people in a room. Oh, God, the heart <laughs> sinks, doesn't it? It really does. And then the second part of this was that um, the best bit of writing is now the best writing I find, there's certain kinds of writing. I find a far better done standing up and standing up and moving about, you know, so I use a laptop and, you know, writing nowadays, like listening to music is, is no longer an activity tethered to one room of the house. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'll, I could take a laptop down at the conservatory. I can, you know, the weather's nice. I go out in the garden. Uh, you know, I know people like Pimpa Fides, he goes out to a cafe, you know, uh, it's, it's the same thing, you know, to go somewhere and to be surrounded by something stimulating. But I find there's a certain kind of writing, which I would call kind of invention writing, that I can only do while standing up. And I think that's partly because I say it to myself at the time that I write it. And therefore, I'm quite an animated person. And so it just, it suits me to be moving about the room. Excellent. And, uh, you know, normally I've got, I've got a conservatory down there. It's, as I say, it's not a big house. It's a, you know, suburban semi. Um, but I've got a conservatory down downstairs. And, uh, and uh, I can open the doors from the conservatory and then the door from the living room and then the door into the hall. And I can pace all the way to the front door and then all the way back to the laptop in the conservatory while talking to myself. And I might have something, a sentence, half a sentence right. worth writing down when I do that. So that's what I have found. A certain kind of writing that only works, only comes to you when your body is moving and standing up. That's good to that's know. What I believe. There's no room for a chair in your writing style. Oh, there are certain bits of it, obviously. There's got to be, you know, revisions and all that mucking about stuff. But originating stuff, coming up with a phrase or a sentence that pleases you. You have to be. Is I, find, I find you've got to be in motion. Brilliant. Number five is it's more important to be interested in human beings than your subject. Yeah, I think... If I, I think I'm, I'm quite good at this, actually. <laughs> I've only really accidentally kind of blundered into it, you know, that uh, I don't I don't write books about rock music for rock fans. I really don't. You know? mm. I try and write for the for the general reader, if you like. Um, and you know, I find that I, I read a I read a lot. I read an awful lot of nonfiction, and the nonfiction I relate to is the, is the stuff where you you know you see the humanity of the subjects peeping through, rather than the processes uh, the, of the world that they're in. And uh, you know, I'm trying to think of examples. You know, like. Well, Robert Caro's extraordinary kind of fifth volume still to come, 
five volume life of Lyndon Johnson is, you know, all right, it's about politics, but it's about life. Mm. It's about people, <laughs> you know. Yes, it's ultimately, superb, isn't it? And uh, I th also his book Working, which is about, which is a little sort of uh, autobiographical, autobiography. I think he says about that, uh, his, his um, Lyndon Johnson, you know, multi-volume epic is like Winston Churchill saying uh, about one of his uh, multi-volume things. Yes, it's a it's a two-volume work, and I'm already on volume four or something like that. <laughs> it's the, just taken over well, this life. is the joke I keep I keep I keep teasing Mark Lewison with, who's writing the you know the massive three-volume uh, thing of the Beatles. I always I always said to Mark, "Am I going to live long enough to read volume <laughs> three? You know, because. Uh, Robert Caro is uh, yet to produce volume five and Robert Caro is in his eighties. And so everybody's very nervously asking in the, if, if you read four volumes, you know, there's no human being on the planet that you care more about than Robert Caro His continued good health. Cause you want to read, uh, you want to read volume five. So um, yeah, it's just that, that to me is, is how I, how I decipher whether what I'm writing about is interesting. I think, I think if I told my wife about this, would she be interested? You know what I mean? Uh -huh. it, I it doesn't, it doesn't depend on somebody knowing who, you know, the stranglers are or whatever. Right. It depends on being able to say there were these four blokes and imagine this for a minute. They did this, then they did that. Then they did that. You know what I mean? It's, it's stories of people. Right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I feel also there's something that the sort of tech folk who have taken over the media with their websites and their platforms and the rest of it completely <laughs> miss, you know, and I think it's something that you, you, it's a point you made in one of your books about Steve Jobs and his going on about his passion for music. And I think you say all oh, you've ever been, a, the only passion you've been able to identify in him is for computers. And I think it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? That, uh, that, the, the much maligned content has been sort of dismissed, you know, that the interesting, the, the, the sort of interesting core of these things has been thrown out in so many, you know, media uh, phenomena in preference for uh, whistles and drums and uh, flashy technological, <laughs> um, you know, capacity. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I suppose I also feel it's something that's informed a lot of your magazine output, you know, your mu the musicians and actors and writers, you know, for all the genius of their output and the degree to which we, we might feel they speak to us personally. They're also very flawed, aren't they? And preposterous and slightly oh, and hilarious. And, and both those things are not exclusive to each other. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, there, there are, that's... Uh, you know, I suppose it's one of the things that I believe about, um, certainly about musicians, and I think you'd probably apply it to other artists, is that, and I think it's one of the mistakes that people make when assessing them, is that they think that they have simple motivations. No, they don't. They have a very complicated motivations. They have, it's all going on at the same time. Greed, ego, artistry, you know, minor jealousy, you know, whim, all that stuff is all swimming about all the time. And that's what's interesting. And that's what makes them interesting to write about, you know, because they do all have feet of clay 
and you know, and yet they've invented this persona that doesn't have Vita Clay. You know that they are ultimately the interesting thing about rock stars is they are their own invention. You know that the most important day's work Bob Dylan ever did was calling himself Bob Dylan. <laughs> Once you've done that, everything else falls into place. It's you know, all gravy. And you're gonna and you're gonna spend the rest of your life playing this character like Marlon Brando did, but better. Right. And David, is there is there a book you'd love to write? Is there one more? Is there a pinnacle of your ambition still within you? <laughs> no, just to get this next one done that I'm <laughs> supposed to do. <laughs> I keep I can I do occasionally like like anybody who's written nonfiction, I do occasionally think, mm, I'm gonna write fiction. And I get half an idea. And then I think, no, I probably can't see my way through to it. But uh, who knows? Who knows? Well, I think as you've kind of discovered this uh, this mine, you know, with a deep seam, uh, which nobody else seems to know the, the path to, you know, you have it to yourself for the moment. <laughs> I would uh, be tempted to stick with it and uh, milk it for all you can because uh, it does bring an awful lot of pleasure to people. They're fabulous books. And... Um, Let's hope it. Let's hope that mine produces some more. This is my. Uh, this is my wish. From Strong Words Magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 